when you flip your light switch and your lights come on. Have you ever wondered where that energy comes from? Have you ever wondered what it's made from? Burning gas, falling water, splitting atoms, or the blowing wind and shining sun? What about who built the infrastructure that brings it to your house? Are those good jobs in your community? And have you ever wondered who makes those decisions which shape our energy world? Is it a corporation? A bureaucracy in Sacramento? Or something much closer to home? And how can you make sure those decisions are best for your planet and your community? Welcome to Taking Power, Community Choice Energy and the Grassroots. I'm your host, Mariah Clegg. On each episode, I bring you important conversations with community environmental advocates along California's central coast to talk about our region's involvement with community choice energy. At heart, community choice energy is about seizing those crucial energy questions, where your energy comes from, what it's made from, who builds the infrastructure, and much more, and bringing those decisions closer to home. Community Choice Energy does this by shifting decision-making power over energy purchases from investor-owned utilities like PG&E and Southern California Edison to locally controlled public agencies called CCAs. For many advocates, CCAs are a way for local actors to take power over our energy system and manifest democratic change from the grassroots. More and more Californians are being served by CCAs, like our very own Central Coast Community Energy, which you'll often hear referred to as 3CE. On this show, you can learn what you need to know about the connection between energy and democracy on the Central Coast. Before we start, I want to give a huge shout out to the Sanderlings, a Santa Barbara local surf punk band that has generously allowed me to use their music for this podcast. The opening song is Lizard's Mouth, written in appreciation of one of the Central Coast's natural wonders. All right, now, on to the interview. Today, I am so pleased to introduce Kirsten Liskey, who is a real champion for the climate through her work with Santa Cruz-based Ecology Action, Welcome, Kirsten, and thank you so much for your time today. Hi, Mariah. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So I was wondering if we could start off with you telling me a little bit about your work with Ecology Action. Thank you so much for asking. I'm delighted to talk about my work with Ecology Action. Personally, it's just such a wonderful time to be working in my avocation and my vocation concurrently. I really stand for full potential oneness and joy for myself and all beings. And so to have my work time be focused in ways where we can build that outcome within our team and also catalyze the community action for it is just a huge honor and feels so important in these times. I've been at Ecology Action 21 years, and that is, uh, my story is a great story of the most recent chapter of Ecology Action. Our first chapter was we started the first recycling program in Santa Cruz with volunteers, Earth Day 1970, 
and really help get some of those early initiatives established. And that tells the story of Ecology Action's trajectory where we recognize the sustainability actions that are doable, achievable, and cost-efficient to do. And we know we just need to get them going, get the community going around them. We started that with the recycling program. When I joined in 1999, there was just seven of us working predominantly on recycling and composting. We were just getting into stormwater quality outreach. And then since then, we've grown to include an energy efficiency and um, large transportation um, planning projects, electric vehicle outreach, commercial energy efficiency, where today we're about a $15 million a year organization with 100 staff. We have a large commercial focus after the past 10 years of serving over 24,000 small to medium businesses around California with energy efficiency work. We are now up-leveling our impact toward our mission of reducing climate emissions at scale to do sustainability work with large grocery industry at a systems change level and direct upgrades and installations with large commercial grocers in water and energy efficiency around the nation. So that's kind of our largest scale work. And locally, we're still, because 40% of our emissions are related to five things we all do every day, our natural gas at home, our energy, our electricity at home, our food, wa- food choices, and our household waste and our transportation. So we all can think about all those categories. 40% of our national emissions are in those categories. So yes, we need systems change. We need grocery and supply chains to change. We need big companies to do their part. We need policy, but we also need individual actions. And that's what my team focuses on is delivering that around the central coast. Encouragement programs, bike to work day, test ride events, and in-person assistance for rebates for low-income electric vehicle uptake, training kids on bike and walk safety, doing uh, plans, official city plans for better bike and walk infrastructure, and installing climate victory gardens to conserve water and reduce pesticide use. Those kinds of projects are what our team's delivering throughout the Central Coast. Wow, that is that is just incredible. I'm so excited to talk more about your work. It seems like what you're doing is so important because it's taking this, this problem that to so many seems uh, seems like so big and outside of our control and saying, no, there is there is something that we can do on the community level and we can build this future block by block. There is a way for you to get involved in this and get involved in that in that solution. Absolutely. And there actually is a tie-in with that to our 3CE Community Choice Energy, which is probably why you're so excited about it, because that took that happened because of our local residents as well. Thank you so much for for tying that in. And yes, I'm always definitely in favor of community action. And definitely I see, I see the, the community choice aggregation model as an important way to do that. Tell me a little bit more about the origins of this community aggregation model uh, in Santa Cruz. Yeah, actually our former director, Ginny Johnson, was one of the early people promoting and really kind of spearheading that effort. She's continued on with Bruce McPherson and other elected leaders to really actually expand it beyond what many of us thought was possible. We initially were thinking it would be for sort of the more liberal uh, towns like, you know, Pacific Grove and Santa Cruz. And when that team went and got King City and the County of San Benito and the County of Monterey to adopt it on its way to becoming one of the largest CCAs, it was just phenomenal to see. And what was so encouraging about that for me was it really showed our whole region 
that our residents and businesses are not just concerned about affordable energy and energy reliability and local economic development, they also cared about climate. Because the beauty of these community choice aggregations, these public agencies that become our utility uh, energy purchasers are, they control what energy they buy. So they can have a huge influence on what the emissions sources are for that and if they can spur economic development with those choices. And they can take some of what profits would have gone to shareholders and put those toward local programs at their discretion. So it was great to really see. And I think that the priorities for that maybe are weighted in one way or another based on the city, but it really became something we could all agree on and was a phenomenal accomplishment for our region to get, um, get that stood up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, tell me what you think about this. But one of the things that, that I've kind of seen studying CCAs uh, for the past few years is that one of the promises is that investor-owned utilities are going to be making their decisions based on the bottom line, pretty much. And with CCAs, there is a chance for us to be kind of more than homo economicus and to, you know, certainly take in price considerations, but also see to this wider variety of community concerns. Absolutely. They, the promise that they have, it's actually multifold. One of the cool things I love about nonprofits is we have the public mission and the innovation nimbleness of a private entity, right? Well, our CCAs are a little bit the same way where they're a utility scale you know, organization and a public agency with a public mission. And they have a lot more flexibility with what they can do with their program funds and their purchases. So they're, um, they're really well positioned to kind of create this new future in a way that is representative of what the community wants. The community has to tell them that, though. So I want to encourage everybody to get involved and understand what their CCA is, is up to and how they're making their decision. Because if the political as well is there, the CCA is there to serve the region. Absolutely. So, um, so tell me a little bit more about this, um, about ways that the community can can get involved. Where you see the community coming into the CCA? Yeah. So the CCA, our CCA, is governed by a policy board and an operations board, and those are made up of electeds from each jurisdiction that's a member. In our case, each jurisdiction, regardless of size, has one board member. So it's very. Uh, it's not weighted toward the more populous areas necessarily. So that means there's kind of an equal way. And so if you can reach out to your council member, which may be easier to do if you're in a smaller jurisdiction, then you can be tracking and telling them what you want to see happen. Additionally, there is a community advisory committee and they actually have seats. You can participate and serve just like on a local city commission and or you can just participate and attend Uh, all the meetings and they have public comment. So you really can provide some comment. There's often local groups that are working to organize, you know, have conversations about what priorities should be and organize responses. So if you want to get up to speed, that's actually a really great place to do it as well. That's great. That's great. So I wanted to ask in terms of your work with Ecology Action, what are some things that have been coming up recently um, at the CCA that you've been, uh, been excited about, been pushing for that sort of thing? Yeah. So, you know, overall, we're about reducing emissions at scale because we need to reduce overall globally our emissions 50 percent by 2030 if we're going to fend off the worst of climate change. And what that means for developed, quote unquote, um, resource nations like ours, it's really more like 80 percent. That's very transformational. So that requires change at the systems change level. 
And it's been really wonderful to see with community involvement, our CCA commit to 100% renewables. And so that's really going to help put a lot more renewables on the grid, which is a key systems change toward our drawdown goals. Uh, they are also looking at uh, establishing a percentage of local renewables, which will help drive microgrids and jobs, because we're all realizing now as well, we A, can't solve the climate crisis without making sure the equity and justice issues are addressed. And there's so many solutions that benefit both. And so it's really been wonderful to see our CCA be open to looking at that. And they're in a very active development process right now for their program investment, where a lot of these kinds of, of things are going on. And, you know, toward the end of there's the systems change side and then, you know, emissions really happen in our homes and businesses. We can say something needs to happen at D.C. or a corporation or China, but really like China's making all our clothes. Who's buying those clothes? One example. Another example is how am I driving? What am I doing? Am I generating a lot of food waste? So that 40 percent of emissions that's under each of our control, there's many organizations working on that. And 3CE is looking where it makes sense to partner with that. They have sponsored ours and our partner agencies drive electric, electric vehicle outreach events and webinars because they recognize that the private sector and state aren't putting enough resources toward the kind of market transformation education of this new technology that's come out, which are these electric vehicles. So they've been a great partner with on the ground education. And, you know, in a similar project, they invested in um, free direct install of solar on lower income homes. So those are the kinds of examples where the community has, you know, with the CCA developed these, this trifecta of priorities, energy reliability, affordability, and community benefit, which includes equity and economic development. And then they're finding these program opportunities to, to realize that in partnership with the community. I want to pause for a minute and emphasize some of what Kirsten Liskey from Ecology Action has laid out for us so far. First, I want to highlight this trajectory Ecology Action has followed. They started with recycling programs, with an explicit focus on actions for climate and community that were doable, achievable, and cost-efficient to do. Then got the community going around them. Anyone who's done community organizing knows that this kind of work has what we can think of as emergent effects. As they build out and get stronger, you can start taking on bigger projects. You can do more. Now, Ecology Action is taking on large-scale energy efficiency projects and working with residential, commercial, and industrial consumers to draw their consumption down and tackling the dreaded transportation sector. As she's laying all this out, Kirsten is making a distinction between systems change work and the more local actions that we as community members can take. We can think of systems change work as efforts to deal with the root causes of social problems. When I think of systems change, I think of changing our economic system, our political system, manifesting revolutionary reforms to create a more just, equitable, and sustainable world. I think about putting 100% renewable energy on our grid. I think of cultural changes. These changes can seem daunting, and I think it's tempting to look at those issues and say the problems are too big. So there's nothing to do but just sit back and watch it happen. 
But then Kirsten reminds us that 40% of our emissions come from five things we do every day. Our natural gas at home, our electricity at home, our food choices, our household waste, and transportation. That's five things. You can count them on one hand. From my perspective, we have a moral obligation to take responsibility for those five things that are directly in our sphere of influence. And there isn't a contradiction between fighting for systems change and taking responsibility for our local, individual, and community actions. As the story of Ecology Action shows, doing good local work is what makes it possible for us to take on those bigger system-wide tasks. And we need to do that if we're going to bring our carbon consumption down, I'll say it again, 80% by 2030. But we can't forget about that local community action. That's where we have the most power to act. And I think that's such an important message for us to carry forward as we think about what's possible with a CCA program. Like Kirsten said, CCAs can make choices about where to buy energy and what kind of energy they want on the grid. They can also fund programs that help impact our overall carbon output, things like electric vehicle programs, programs for low-income residents, and energy efficiency upgrades. With this commitment to reliability, affordability, and community benefits, CCAs are gathering up all this community potential, all these local changes and manifesting system change. And there are ways for you to get involved. I really recommend heading over to the 3CE website, 3cenergy.org, and clicking through to and clicking through to community affairs to find out the latest on how to get involved. Okay, back to the interview. fabulous. I mean, so so something for, for listeners to keep in mind about how community choice aggregation programs work is they essentially take over the, uh, the procurement of energy. But here, 3C Energy and other CCAs have also been able to cultivate more green renewable generation. Um, so could you tell me a little bit about how that happens? Basically, they, they could be some CCAs could be set up just like a utility in a way where their community wants to prioritize reliability and affordability. So they could set up their procurement and rate structures to buy the cheapest energy out there, minimize their overhead, and then they're good, right? But because our community CCA also includes the local economic development benefit and equity and climate as part of their mission, they're they're having a more complex challenge of trying to provide that utility scale reliability and affordability while delivering this broader community benefit and still trying to come out and they have so far under the competitive utility rates um, in terms of cost to customer. So we as customers are paying less than we would to our private utility before, and we're getting these local program benefits and a pathway toward increased renewables on, on our grid. Thank you so much for that. That's, that's really illuminating. Um, so thinking about this, uh, the local generation aspect as well, I mean, this is, I think, something that has got to be on the forefront of people's mind every time fire season comes around is, you know, how, where am I in relation to where energy is being generated uh, such that I can actually have 
energy resilience in the wake of disasters. Yeah, it's an interesting, in some ways, it's an interesting conundrum for the CCA. So they, this is my perspective, I'm not an expert in this case. You know, the promise of a lot of of solar on every rooftop and solar jobs was a big part of actually of the adoption and formation of the CCA, especially in climate forward communities like Santa Cruz. And in the very short time between when the initiative got introduced and the political will was being you know, built and the, the organization got formed, we hit a place that's resulted in the duck curve in California where we actually have too much solar on our grid during peak hours. So it quickly became apparent that without storage, the solar energy that's getting generated actually can't serve us at the times of day we need it. And so all of a sudden, it didn't make sense to put solar on every rooftop without storage. And there aren't, at this point, super affordable, scalable solar solutions. So, you know, so that's kind of one of the conundrums that the utilities had to deal with, the the CCA, because everybody thought, oh, now all of a sudden we're going to hire all these solar contractors and the whole industry changed. And for them to survive, they had to adjust. And then the second part that's interesting is they still are an organization that needs to, you know, fund itself and have a revenue model. And if they sort of pay to have other parties own their own power systems, you know, that revenue goes away. That's still a community benefit. So this is what I think they're trying to look at is both with the storage, you know, time of use, who's going to own and manage those things? How do they concurrently build local resiliency? And so that's why they're focusing on things like the microgrid projects, because that's a place where there's a local community need. They have an opportunity to have a renewable and a storage mix together. And it kind of hits all those factors of providing that resilience. So they're looking at things like places where they could put solar plus storage at a hospital. You know, and then that microgrid becomes a place people can go charge their cell phones and cars and things like that in an emergency, but also provides a critical backup service. That's fantastic. And I mean, I think it's it's so smart to be able to like figure out what is a really crucial piece of a uh, uh, infrastructure, the cr- really critical facilities, I often hear them hear them called, uh, like hospitals, like schools, that sort of thing, say, okay, we're gonna build a microgrid around this. This is gonna provide resilience. And if, you know, in the event of, uh, of natural disasters or other kinds of things, this can be a hub where people trust that they can go and they can get their needs met. Um, I think that's just just a brilliant solution. Yeah, it definitely is. They can take a while to develop. And so I think a key point for all of us as a community and them as an agency is to figure out where are those best places to do it and how do we design those more quickly and and get them on the ground. If there were, I think, a roadmap of those investment opportunities laid out for CCA, they'd be happy to explore those. And it's just, you know, there's a lift to try and try and get that done. But yeah, it's, it's a great solution. And then every person can look at that for their home as well. There's more and more affordable um, battery storage that could go with solar or even just battery storage. And then we're having 100% renewable power off our grid that then could be our backup EV charger or our, you know, backup power supply. Uh, I think one key opportunity you were mentioning fires is really a key opportunity is to transition folks off propane in the rural areas with renewables and storage. The propane is not only an additional fire hazard, but it's a lot more expensive than uh, grid provided electricity. And that makes the whole solar or wind and storage mix more affordable for them. And then they also have the, the power when the power lines get shut down in their neighborhood. 
Absolutely. Um, so you, you mentioned um, a little bit about the jobs angle and the kind of and, and local generation, that sort of thing. And I'm wondering, what, what do you see as the as the connection between 3C energy and something like a regional Green New Deal? Or is this something that you've been thinking about? Yeah, I'm not involved in a lot of those detailed um, things. So I'm sure you'll interview somebody who's deep, deep in that. You know, what we do look at, though, is we are in the business of trying to accelerate adoption, enthusiastic adoption of the solutions that are available to us right now. They're affordable, they're available, they're at scale. And what that takes is a lot of education, outreach, deployment, marketing, boots on the ground. So we certainly, you know, could have a team of instead of five EV outreach field team, we could have 50 that are helping people one-on-one access the rebates that the state's providing, but they have technology or language barriers, for example, in under-resourced areas. You know, it is a great example because lower-income people can access in our region up to $14,000 in rebates for in grants for a purchase of an electric vehicle, which brings their monthly cost for a new car down to you know $100 or less, or they can lease one for free. They don't know about the programs. They're on six different websites. They may have language barriers. Even my PhD friends are calling me saying, how does the tax credit work? So, you know, just having a lot of people employed to understand and accelerate access to these rebates, get more people into electric vehicles, huge climate benefit. For our region, just the Monterey Bay area uh, is targeted to try and get to 180,000 EVs to meet our state goal within, I think, the next five five to seven years, we have 14,000 right now, you know, so there's just this huge need to overcome. I don't know about EVs. I'm not sure where to charge. So that's an example of a place where we're not necessarily planting trees, but we're achieving climate benefit, building community connectivity and providing jobs. If there was more funding, local CCAs are a place that funding can come from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the CCA is using a lot of the resources that they're getting from being in the energy business and being, you know, uh, collecting collecting ratepayer dollars, and then uh, and being able to mobilize that for the public good rather than towards shareholders. Exactly. Yeah. The three CE has a set amount of its um, annual revenue that they set aside for these programs, and as I mentioned, they're in a very active phase right now with their um, their community advisory committee um, and their policy board to develop how, what programs they're gonna fund um, starting in October, their next program cycle. It's a great time to get involved if you wanna tell them what kind of programs you think they should fund with their program dollars. And you mentioned they also can make choices with their procurement dollars of funding more microgrids, funding more renewables and storage projects locally, and that generates local jobs as well. And you know, help save utility money for those users. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've been following the C three energy outreach, and you know, trying to really trying to trying to solicit community input for what they do with these with these funds with with our funds, really. Um, so, could you tell me? Could you tell me a little bit about about kind of what that outreach has kind of looked like so far? Yeah, it's been really amazing. And I just want to give 3CE kudos. They Obviously, they are highly scrutinized public organization. 
That said, in the past three years, they stood up a new organization, you know, expanded it unexpectedly, you know, into San Luis and Santa Barbara, got all their systems in place, did hold to their carbon-free power commitment, pivoted, you know, very quickly recently to commit to 100% renewables based on overall organization community input. So it's been really phenomenal. And I think there's been some critique that they haven't been as open. And I also see that they kind of have been, you know, really scrambling in startup mode for many, you know, for years. And so what was exciting this year was they said that hasn't been our intention. We want to have open community processes. We're at a point now where we can take a pause and do that. So they actually didn't build... Uh, issue as robust a program offering in this past fiscal year so they could take their staff time and work with the community to develop their next one. So that's entailed their staff having a lot of stakeholder meetings. They've had different equity, industry, nonprofit, agriculture, large client focus groups. Um, They have an advocacy roundtable that meets regularly with nonprofits. Their community advisory committee, any of those meetings are open, but that group actually picked up an ad hoc process. So they're meeting separately and doing parallel program evaluation with the staff, and they are actively meeting with community constituents to get feedback, including folks like us. We submitted them about a 10-page program recommendation and justification list. So, you know, and they did a big community survey that they emailed out in a couple in Spanish and English, and they've really been, you know, incorporating all that feedback, which is a lot to take in. And here in early March, where the process is at right now, is they had an initial list of almost 60 program ideas. And they maybe they think pared it down to about 12. And the idea is now with those, they're going to do a deeper dive process over the next few months to say which one should stick with the goal of like five or six, and what should those look like. So it is really a great time to weigh in on, okay, well, if the program is going to be X, can it also include a jobs-related issue, if that's what you care about, or things like that. So that's that's how the process has been going. And it's been really wonderful to see the openness of the organization to that process. That's great. That's great. And you know, you mentioned you mentioned startup mode. And I think it's just it's important for listeners to understand how how long the journey has been towards actually getting CCAs to be something that could be that could be viable in California? Um, this, this is um, legislation that is that is coming right out of the uh, the electricity crisis of 2000 2001. Shortly thereafter, the um, the the CCA policy is written, and it has taken so long. You know, Marin Clean Energy was the first followed by Sonoma. Um, and, you know, they they had to fight so many battles against investor-owned utilities, particularly against PG&E. Um, and, uh, slightly less so f- um, from Southern California Edison, because a lot of these struggles were going on in, uh, in PG&E territory. Um, but I think I think that this is always something to kind of keep in mind as we're, um, as we're evaluating what the CCA has done. Where have you, um, how, so how long have you kind of been following this, um, the, the emergence of the, uh, of the CCA? I mean, you've been at Ecology Action for, uh, for 21 years. So I imagine that you were, you've been in the thick of it this whole time. Well, we've definitely been tracking it, but as a real program implementation organization, rather than an advocacy organization, we didn't get actively involved in the community organizing. Folks like the Romero Institute and Green Power, you know, were very active in doing grassroots community outreach in our area. I know Community Environmental Council down in Santa Barbara for the recent expansion has been very active. Um, I think once they got formed, we got really involved in thinking, you know, how do we help partner? How do we become co-creative partners with what are the best and most impactful program solutions for climate in the region? And 
So we started working uh, with their staff right away and attending attending their meetings. So we've been watching that. And, you know, I think I, I personally, where, you know, regardless of where my organization's at, I have a lot of dreams for the community and I know a lot of our activist partners do as well. And, and it'll be, it's going to be really interesting to see what role 3CE figures out that it can play toward those, you know, really grassroots distributed microgrids that, you know, provide community jobs, maybe have distributed ownership models. There's a whole bunch of really innovative solutions that I think, you know, there are perspectives that 3CE has been falling short on actively hearing and taking in. And so I think it's, it's continuing to try and take advantage of these open public settings, as well as local activist engagement to, to elevate those and, and really figure out if we can have those kind of conversations. So um, it doesn't feel like everything's baked yet. It doesn't feel like everything's been realized yet about what's possible from kind of the community solutions perspective, but it also doesn't feel like it's been fully baked. And, you know, along with everybody else, I think I would say we're all large organizations, environmental nonprofits, especially really trying to just begin to understand the deep equity issues. So I think there definitely is room to grow in a lot of these areas. And so it's up, up to all of us to make our CCA what we want it to be. All right. So now we've really started to get a feel for the nuts and bolts of how our energy system works and where the CCA comes in. The CCA basically takes up part of the job that utilities have had for a long time figuring out where to buy energy from. This is called procurement. And with CCAs in charge, the idea is we can both buy more clean energy to sell to ourselves, the community, the ratepayer, and we can direct revenues we get from being in that energy procurement and sale position back into community goods. But there's a problem that Kirsten Liskey from Ecology Action points out that bears repeating. If you want to buy a bunch of solar, that's great. The only problem is people don't just want energy when the sun is shining. So if you encourage everyone to put solar on their rooftops and you don't have a good energy storage solution, you're going to end up still having to use a bunch of dirty energy to make up the difference to power our late night cooking and unconventional work hours. This problem isn't insurmountable, but it means you need to invest in energy storage too. This is a problem that both CCAs and utilities need to grapple with. There's another problem too. A CCA, just like a utility, has to have a revenue stream. If you just encourage everyone to put up rooftop solar, they own the power, and the CCA doesn't see that revenue. This is one of the reasons microgrids are such an exciting technology. Microgrids are energy systems that combine energy generation, storage, and smart demand response systems that even out energy use, all on the local level. Microgrids can be as small as a building, but they often serve an area the size of a downtown neighborhood and they can link together modularly. Microgrids deal with both these problems we've been talking about at once. They provide storage to match generation, so we can use solar-generated power after the sun goes down, and they can be operated by the CCA, so that power 
turns into community revenue. What's more, they deal with that big issue I brought up at the beginning of this segment, energy resilience. With local microgrids, we don't have to rely on energy that's zapped in from miles away, traveling on transmission lines that drape through dry wilderness and spark fires. It's worth remembering that utility transmission lines have been responsible for thousands of wildfires in recent years including the one that destroyed the town of Paradise in 2018. Of course, all this technology, and even the model of CCAs themselves, are very new, and there's still a lot of kinks we need to work out. The way I look at it, we are living in a time of great experimentation. Never before have we had the opportunity to shape our electricity system to meet social purposes that we determine. In that way, I think our electricity system is pretty unique. We've never really gotten to try our hand at approaching energy questions like they're matters of public concern before. That's just one reason why what we do in the next few years regarding CCAs matters so much. We're racing the clock for our survival as a planet. And we're also shaping a new system of energy management that can be suited to social purpose. We have a great opportunity and a great responsibility to do it right. All right, let's get back to Kirsten Liske from Ecology Action and tag back to her last comment about equity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm so glad that you bring up this equity issue as well. Um, as we all know, environmental uh, crisis falls disproportionately on people who are, who are the most marginalized in our communities. And, you know, oftentimes a lot of um, a lot of environmental discourse has focused on kind of like upper or middle class kinds of uh, kinds of perspectives. And a lot of the uh, the solutions that are posed are framed in kind of in those terms. And I mean, as you're saying about the the electric vehicles, there have been so many gains um, to say this is actually something that can be affordable. And we recognize that these are not necessarily by nature affordable. Um, you know, so what are some ways that we can really recognize those equity issues and tackle them? All that to say, I think you're, you're doing you're doing amazing work in that area. Um, but you know, kind of thinking about this distributed energy kind of kind of model, one of the models that I've seen is you know having and, and that you've kind of laid out is having you know rooftop solar, having um, some battery storage capacity with like with with electric vehicles, that sort of thing. Um, and these these certainly aren't. Um, aren't options that are like open to everyone, you know, if you don't own your home or if you, if you have to park your car, you know, uh, a ways away. So what are some of the, some of the kinds of more equity focused kind of models that, um, that have been really inspiring to you? One of the things we've, we've been working on is just the electrical vehicle charging infrastructure example. So when we built the highway system, one agency built the, you know, the interstate highway system. In this case, we're basically doing a fueling infrastructure transformation that's being done by many different parties. You have the private sector companies that are finding the good opportunities to put in the fast chargers in high-income tourist areas or employers. 
you, you know, have these state rebates. And so then it's kind of up to the property owner to decide they have a need for it. And yet 40% of the people in San Francisco Bay Area live in apartments. And most people will only get an EV if they can charge at home. It's the most frequent concern for not getting an EV. So we're not, nobody's tackling that. If the, and when we go and try and talk to the property owners, none of my people can afford EVs. So I don't need to try and figure it out in addition to the, all the other barriers that there are in apartment buildings. So there's places like that where our current lack of kind of a centralized comprehensive plan and investment in charging infrastructure is falling down. And it, it's an equity issue as well, right? Because it's lower income people that tend to live in apartments, they're getting left behind. So even if there are, like you said, a lot of rebates and the cars are much more market right now, there's, you know, a couple dozen EV malls out there and they're coming more every day. If you can't charge at home and your apartment manager is not going to work with it and none of your neighbors have it, it's, it's not accessible to you. So we're working on, on solutions like that. And some of those things may be if there's a park or a school across the street doing a, char- a shared um, park uh, charging solution where it's used by employees during the day and then in the evening it's used by residents in that apartment building that can go across the street. So you're, it's just taking that lens and looking at it everywhere you go. And then the other thing we're doing is we're disproportionately investing our grant monies that we get in those communities. So things like for people that can access EV space online, great, here's your online tool, go figure it out. For lower income folks or people that are just more technology or language challenge, we're gonna provide you some one assistance in your language from people from your community. So, you know, it's thinking about your program design and how do we partner and hire the grassroots organizations in those communities to do that outreach for us? How do we stipend our champions in our communities to do the outreach for us and things like that? So. Um, I do, I will say our, you know, environmental programs have definitely been uh, very white, uh, middle-class owning cultured and focused. And at the same time, just like in um, under and over-resourced countries, that class is very over-resourced. So guess who's responsible for probably the majority of the 40% of those emissions from our day-to-day activities. So there is an element of, of focusing in those communities to say, hey, consumption, you know, transportation, food waste, it's our, it's, that's our part to do. So we can really do our part by recognizing we may be more of the emissions because we're flying on vacation and we have larger homes with fewer people in them and we're not carpooling, things like that. We're buying more stuff. So. Mm. That's such a, that's such an important consideration that the, you know, we, we must have an equity perspective on this. And we also need to recognize that there, there are some people in our society who are, who are more responsible for, for the damages that have been, that have been caused. And that's a important place for us to start making, uh, start making those changes. So I, I really appreciate that perspective. I also wanted to go back to what you're saying here. It seems like, you know, as, as you're laying out the, the electric vehicle and just kind of our transportation solutions, there is a need to have a comprehensive approach to how we how we approach the transition to electric vehicles in terms of you know where people can charge you know putting rebates and programs together there needs to be some very high level organization to to make packages for people that are uh that feel 
that it's all not all just kind of being held together fragilely with uh, you know chewing gum, <laughs> I suppose, um, and that's that CCAs can uh, can perhaps be this kind of uh, comprehensive organizer of the programs and of these ap approaches. So there's really a sense of working together there, and then there's also the level of working together at at the community level and saying like, okay, so we have people who are renting over here, and we also have a school where their kids go to school, and this is a place where we can charge electric vehicles for the employees during the day and for residents at night. That is a holistic community approach. Um, and then also just, just recognizing that we're going to need a, a broad-based community response to, uh, to the issue of transportation that really in, involves everyone in the community and really draws everyone in. So I'm just getting the warm and fuzzies. Uh <laughs> I love that. I'll, I'll, I'll do a plus one on your the school apartment charging and say have and have that fueled by a microgrid on site for that school, right? Oh, yeah. now we're <laughs> Absolutely, and I mean it's it's just it's just this kind of like um, really big thinking that we so need in approaching these um, these climate issues. And you know, as you're listing off everything that you do with Ecology Action and all the different programs that you're involved in, you know, this is this is the big thinking. This is the holistic thinking. This is you know, saying what are our problems? Five things. Let's tackle all of them. We can't just go after one. And let's try to network uh, different community groups together so we can do this work together. Exactly. And I'll give a shout out. I mean, that that low lower income apartment um, electric vehicle charging work we're doing is partially being funded by two CCAs, the East Bay Clean Energy and Silicon Valley Clean Energy, because they're also recognizing if they want to elect electrify their territory, they've got to overcome this issue. They have a Salinas has about like a 25 percent apartment dwelling, but the Bay Area has way higher. So the good news is there we can learn from what they're doing there and apply it here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, this is, this comes back to another point that I've seen as I've also, as I've kind of been studying CCAs over the past few years is the amount of collaboration that happens among different, among different CCAs and, you know, different, um, uh, you know, you'll have Marine Clean Energy, which which really really started things off, sharing ideas and giving support to the Lancaster CCA program, and you know then Lancaster sharing um, sharing ideas and also um, and also rather going into business with the Santa Barbara City CCA, and all of these CCAs just just connected into a real political force, which is I think precisely what we need if we're going to confront the, if I may say so, hegemonic power of the investor-owned utility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting because each CCA has slightly different flavors and priorities in their own governance structure, but they definitely are working together to learn, you know, and share best in class ideas and in some case partner on projects like back end customer information system development and things like that. So it is really great to see it is it is in the spirit of the public good. Um, that they're working together and, and being collaborative, which is really exciting. And yeah, just such a deep bow to Marin, especially and Sonoma for dealing with all the litigation and forging the way. We were a fast follower in the Monterey Bay area, now 3CE, and it just was so much easier for us because of their great work here in California to get that little nose of change established for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. So we've touched on this a little bit before, but um, but I want to see if we can turn to this uh, kind of full force now. Um, what are some of the most important challenges uh, with CCAs and our energy future that we have to be aware of as we move forward? 
You know, one of the things that we've been promoting a lot of, and it, and it's both at the state level and locally, uh, although, you know, we're not super big in the advocacy space, but we have been sharing this insight. The, and the metaphor is if you are going to um, put solar on your home, if you're going to figure out what is your grid load for your home, first, you're going to look at all your energy efficiency options because new sources are very expensive. And so... The, the equivalent to that at the community or um, utility level is energy investing in energy efficiency for your clients. And we have recently seen PG&E, um, the state, everybody's so excited about electrification as a place to put their innovation because it's net new revenue for the organization, you know, and that goes for your CCAs as well as your utility. It, it's good for carbon and it's good for revenue. This is awesome, right? Well, an EV puts as much load on the grid as a new home. And so the investment in both the amount of uh, source out there, as well as potentially transmission issues, upgrading all the utility boxes and things like that is just incredibly expensive. The best long-term solution for rate management or a best practice for long-term rate management would be to invest more heavily in efficiency than is happening anywhere. And it's good for climate because it takes those emissions off right now. Um, so I think that's one challenge that it costs a lot. It reduces revenue and it's hard to see how it fits in the picture unless you look at it in that, in that bigger picture view. And we think that's a miss that's happening at both the utility level, at the utility level, period. And then I do think, you know, and I've seen it with water districts we work with and solid waste districts we work with, that they still are an organization that needs to sustain its investments and sustain its staff doing its good work. So revenue is a key driver. And like anyone else, Monterey Bay Area, there was a couple dozen uh, customers that really made up a big portion of their load. And so even if there's, you know, 100,000 community residents that want to see something happen, if that's not also the priority of those larger businesses in the community, the CCA is going to be really, they're trying to hold what sometimes is aligned and sometimes is disparate goals of the um, cost efficiency and carbon emissions reduction and community benefit. So they're trying to walk the tightrope of all of the public agency and customer interests. And, you know, it's, it's a very scrutinized place to be. It's a tough place to be. And this is where I think it's really on the community instead of putting it on them to maximize the community and climate benefits that we're looking for is to get the political will there with their largest customers, with their, their public agency folks, because then it's a no-brainer. They're happy to do it. So that that is a challenge, I think, for the kind of rapid societal transformation that climate and equity activists are wanting to see is that you have, you know, a large public agency. It represents a lot of different interests. And so, you know, how do you resolve that and how do you maximize benefit out of that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's, both of those are just, are so insightful and, and so important. I mean, this, the, this first point that you made will really resonate with people who may be familiar with degrowth economics. Uh, the idea that like, okay, we need to transition our economic system to, so that we are, uh, we're not just set on infinite growth or die. And, you know, here we, we are still within the economic system of capitalism. Somebody smart who I talked to recently said, uh, we're moving energy from, you know, with CCAs from the private part of the ledger to the public, you know, this is there, there is a real change going on here. 
but there's still these constraints about uh, about getting revenue and recognizing that organizations are going to want to pursue revenue. So yeah, this just that seems like a really um, really important problem. And you know, and I'll say revenue, but also you know, we we I hear very frequently from the CCA staff that managing rates to remain competitive under PG&E so they don't have customers opt out is a high concern. And you could label that as a revenue concern, but you also could look at is that same revenue is what's allowing them to do renewables procurement. That same revenue is what's allowing them to do the community programs. So, you know, it, it's a complex issue. And I would also say that that priority is also being driven by those customers where we work, you know, uh, we all work, they're, they're businesses in our, in our communities and our public agencies. So if the CCA staff and customers and the public agencies were all saying, hey, you know, rapid decarbonization and equity uplift is our top priority and we're willing to spend another 10 or something percent over what the, you know, private utility is charging, I'm sure they'd be happy to do it. So I think people point to the CCA as being a bad guy for making those decisions, but it's really, it's also up to us. You know, that leadership can come from a lot of different spaces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's so powerful. I mean, it, it goes back to capitalizing on one of the great innovations with CCAs is that it's a public entity. It's, it's something that we can get involved in and we can get involved as individuals by going to uh to the to the community advisory committees, um, we can also reach out to our to the elected representatives who sit on these boards. We can also join together as organizations um, and engage in the work that the kinds of work that you do, um, and really really be that you know that that big voice for the climate in the room. So um, I wanted to I wanted to also kind of tie back onto this this second problem that you that you brought up about residents ha- being outgunned as it were some uh, sometimes against these kind of large consumers who have uh, who have the ear of the the people who are making the decisions basically and it just it strikes me that this is a problem that is so at the core of democracy in general. Yeah, it's interesting because I actually don't know. I don't know how it works in 3CE. I know they have a specific large customer stakeholder group, and I know we hear about those rates concerns very frequently. And I know there's some public agencies that are their members for whom that is their top priority. So, you know, I don't know that it's business customers. Um, yeah, and I, and I, and I haven't been in those decisions and those conversations within the organization. I'm just make I'm kind of making a few connections and, you know, just, just seeing it as well with the other public agencies, like anytime in waste or water, you worked on conservation programs, you're asking that agency to spend more money to then reduce their revenue. And it becomes hard as a, a director of that to figure out, well, how is that sustainable? So there are, you know, there's constraints in the systems, um, that, that, require a focus on revenue. Um, that said, if we had the political willingness to say, hey, we don't need our rates to stay under PG&E because we want to achieve community benefit. And then, you know, that's a conversation that we need to be having with folks that aren't aligned with that, if that's what we feel is important, because that the CCA totally has the ability to do that. It's totally within their purview. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, and again, seizing on this thing that is very much the the province of CCAs, which is the ability to speak to the the public's demands and to and to respond to the political will that we that we that we voice, whatever that that may be.
I think this last part of my conversation with Kirsten Liskey from Ecology Action is just so important. So I want to double back on this emphasis on wraparound comprehensive planning regarding our energy system. And this goes for all the things we use energy for, including not just electricity, but also natural gas for heating and cooking, and diesel for generators, as well as gas in our vehicles. Right now, we've got a patchwork model for how to make the transition to a more sustainable future. This is really where community groups and entities like CCAs can play a huge role in bringing all those plans together into a comprehensive framework for change. We need to have that big picture approach to tackle a couple points in particular. First, and quite obviously, we need it to deal with social equity issues. The market is not going to sort itself out in favor of people who have been historically and perpetually marginalized. Second, if we want to do more than just deal with the carbon impact of our current electricity system, which isn't nothing, it's around 30% of total U.S. emissions, we need to think about how to integrate our natural gas generators and vehicles into a comprehensive clean energy system. But like Kirsten says, if you just electrify everything, you're going to need a lot more energy on the grid. That's why we also need that big picture thinking to achieve greater energy efficiency. As everyone in the energy world knows, it's always better to save a lot than to use a lot, even if it's renewable. And it's also our best investment for keeping our rates low. And while that big picture view is missing at the utility level, it's something we can really prioritize if we muster the political will to do it through our CCAs. I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to say if there's anything else that you'd like to leave listeners with as, as kind of a last remark. Yeah. I just want to encourage everybody to work. What you know? What will it be for you to shift from despair and overwhelm about the climate into hope and action? Because there are many paths forward. We've talked about lots of solutions today that hopefully inspired you about what's possible that we can achieve equity and climate outcomes and feel good about that as a community through things like bigger things like the CCA that we made to help happen and ways you can get involved in local projects and in your own activities at home. So, um, you know, when you take that shorter shower or you walk down to the grocery store, you're doing it for your collective love of humanity. And so just inspiring people to tap into that. And, you know, we and many others are available to have encouragement and partnership and community in that response. And, and also keep looking at the systems change stuff, you know, green, get involved in your Green New Deal coalition, get involved in partnering with 3CE to develop out their programs. If you care about that, quote, higher level impact, um, all of it's good. Just get in action. Thank you so much. Ecology action, we might add. <laughs> Ecology and equity action. We have, we're like, what? Okay. Is it time for a name change? Yeah. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Kirsten. And thanks so much to you for tuning in to Taking Power, Community Choice Energy and the Grassroots. I'm your host, Mariah Clegg. And until next time, here's your outro by Sanderlings. I'm not going to sit in the desk. I'm not going 
Tuck it in.